0: This morning, we're going to see the beauty of vision, and I'm going to introduce you to two men who were inspired by God's vision to fight for good. You know the expression, fight the good fight? The Apostle Paul was mentoring a young man named Timothy whose faith was going to mean trouble for him. Following Jesus would steer him into conflict, but Paul knew this is how God changes the world— By inspiring his people with a vision of the future that will get them involved in the right kind of trouble in the present. So he wrote to Timothy to encourage him, fight the good fight of faith. Whenever a person sees God's vision and then gets to work to make it happen, he's going to find himself facing a fight. Not a battle fueled by his ego or his insecurity or his agenda, but a fight inspired by the faith which knows where we are right now is not where God wants us to be, and in order to get there, we're going to have to go through some conflict. The beauty of vision is when God's picture of the future comes to us in the present and shows us what we should be fighting for right now. Let's start with God's vision from the book of Revelation, a picture of the future meant to encourage all who are struggling in the present. In chapter 7, John describes the vision of heaven that Jesus has given to him. It's a picture of who will be there in the future kingdom of God and what they will experience. Let's listen and then see how God might inspire us in the present with this vision of the future. This is Revelation chapter seven, verses nine through 17. After this, I looked and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one who knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before The throne of God, and worship Him day and night within His temple, and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away. Every tear from their eyes. Here is a beautiful vision of the future, a picture of the joy down the road, God's vision of the peace and everlasting satisfaction that is for everyone who trusts Him and belongs to Jesus, a vision of the life which comes after what is called here the great ordeal. This year has felt like a great ordeal to many of you. Not just difficult, but apocalyptic. I know because of how many times revelation has come up. In the very beginning of March, I got an email. Do you think these are the end times? Are we beginning to experience the great ordeal? Is 2020 going to be the year when it all ends? The simple answer is that we can't know for sure. We're not the first generation to think revelation is being fulfilled in our own time. History is full of examples of God's people getting tripped up by trying to solve the riddle of when the end will come. The truth is we can't know, and we shouldn't spend too much energy trying to figure it out. That's what Jesus told his disciples. And more importantly, that's not the point of this beautiful vision— Revelation wasn't given to answer the question of when. It was given to show God's people the beauty of the future so they would know what the good fight of faith should look like in the present. And right now, we need help seeing what to fight for, don't you think? This vision is given to help us. It tells us, When the world is hard, fight for hope. You want to give up. But the vision says, one day everything will be fixed forever. Jesus will be right there with you, like when a shepherd protects his sheep. Every thirst and every hunger you've ever known will be satisfied by him, and every pain you've ever had to carry will be removed forever, like a father wiping the tears from his child's eye. God will comfort you perfectly. That's what the future will look like. Don't give up. Fight for hope, this vision says. We need to hear that. It also tells us, stop trying to save yourself. Fight for grace. You'll want to work out how to make yourself right with God, but that's not how it works. Fight to trust and accept that grace is everything. The robes and the palm branches in this vision say, it is the grace of Jesus that will deliver and save you in the end. Fight for that. No amount of hard work on your part is going to wash out the stain of your sin. And unless your robes are clean, you can't be with God. But the promise here is that the cleansing required for you to stand unblemished in God's presence has been provided by the blood of the Lamb Jesus, he chose the cross to cleanse you from sin. Now he sits upon the throne of God and he's chosen to purify you by his grace. You are free because he's liberated you. The vision tells us fight for grace. We need to hear that too. There's one more, especially pertinent for today. The vision says, fight for everyone. Not just for your people against their people, but for everyone. Because in God's kingdom, there are no more sides to be on. Everyone is on the same side before God. Look back at the beginning of the vision with me. I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The people who are standing before Jesus are from every nation, tribe, people, and language. These four designations are how people divided up from one another in the first century. The way they labeled us against them for their fights. This vision says in God's kingdom, there will be no more dividing up like this. The good shepherd welcomes everyone because he has no respect for the distinctions that we use to separate from one another. If you're going to stand before him, it will be with every kind of person. No more tribalism, no more nationalism, no more feelings of superiority in one people group over another. In God's kingdom, we're all in it together, equal before the Lamb. This vision says right now, you've got to stop fighting against and start fighting for one another, everyone. We need this vision, especially now, because this year, everywhere we look, we see people fighting against one another, and we know it's not right. This is not how God meant it to be. We need to let this vision of the future change the way we fight in the present. Whenever God's people do that, it's beautiful. I want to show you two men, both of whom fought the same good fight because this vision of God's kingdom got into their hearts. Both were named Theodore, which means gift of God. And both became God's gift in the fight for the abolition of slavery. This is Theodore Weld, one of the architects of the abolitionist movement in the early 19th century, a follower of Christ whose heart was set on fire by the vision of God's kingdom in which there were no more divisions based on race. Weld was born in Hampton, Connecticut. Both of his grandfathers were congregational ministers. When he was young, he left school but never stopped developing his unique gift for public speaking. He had the power to hold a room full of people spellbound even as a kid. For work, he traveled around the country as an itinerant instructor, teaching in open-air gatherings. Two things happened in those years of travel for Weld. First, his skills for oratory grew. As eloquent as an angel and as powerful as thunder. Harriet Beecher Stowe's father wrote that about Weld. Second thing, he witnessed slavery up close. And it was horrible, especially down south. Out on the road, he saw with his own eyes what happens when men believe they own other men. When the color of a man's skin means he's regarded as a thing to be bought and sold. In God's kingdom, all people are worthy of the same liberties, freedom, and dignity, not only standing before God in the future, but right here with one another in the present. He knew that. Early in 1830, he added to his speaking repertoire the subject abolition. In a country that professed to be Christian, there is only one right path, to abolish slavery completely and immediately. He knew all the counter-arguments. He also knew how many of his fellow Christians spiritualized the Bible in order to remain pro-slavery, but none of it convinced him. Within a year, he'd caught the attention of several of the leaders of this new movement, and so they persuaded him to return to school to theological studies at Lane Seminary out in Cincinnati. There, he would focus all of his attention on building a coalition of leaders around this cause. In February of 1834, as a new student, he scheduled a series of 18 public debates, but he argued so persuasively that they really weren't debates at all. The beauty of God's vision, it was so strong that the student body was convinced immediately. And that sent all of them that summer out into the city on a mission for liberation. Now in Cincinnati, that meant a fight. By the fall, rumors of violence against the seminary were circulating, and in response, the trustees of Lane shut down the Abolition Society on campus, and they passed a rule forbidding any further discussion of slavery, even at mealtimes, and they threatened Weld with expulsion. Now listen, whenever a Christian gets himself into the good fight of faith, he will face resistance, even from within the Christian community. Theodore Weld's story is not unique. This is Theodore Wright, born in the same time period as Weld. As a young man, Wright attended the African Free School in New York City, founded by Alexander Hamilton. Wright was so bright and hardworking that in 1825, he was admitted to Princeton Theological Seminary, where he became the first African-American student to graduate from any seminary in the United States. God's vision also got into his heart and it inspired him to devote himself to two goals, the proclamation of the gospel and the abolition of slavery. Wright's preaching was undeniably inspired, awakening in his hearer's faith, but also resistance. One Sunday, a leader of the pro-slavery faction, a white lawyer from the Presbyterian church down in New Orleans, decided to come and see what all the fuss was about. Wright's sermon was so eloquent and so spirit-empowered that the man was brought to tears and changed the course of his life right there and right then. As a follower of Jesus, this fight, he decided, would become his fight too. But again, whenever a Christian is inspired by God's vision of the future to change his path and fight in the present, he will face resistance. In 1836, Wright was back in Princeton for the commencement ceremonies at the seminary chapel. The room was crowded and everyone stood. But then as the singing finished, when everyone began to take their seats, the silence was broken by a voice from behind Wright what do you think you're doing here? A second time, louder, what do you think you are doing here? A sophomore student from the Ancrum family, one of the wealthiest slaveholding dynasties in South Carolina was the aggressor. The year before, he and his brother had organized a lynch mob against a white abolitionist in Princeton. At least a third of the student body at that commencement ceremony were pro-slavery at the time, and like Ankrum, thought it was wrong for a black man to join this gathering. All of them were studying to be pastors in the church at the time. Think of that. Wright stood silently. Ankrum grabbed him by the collar, threw him to the ground, and began to kick him Don't let me see you here ever again, he threatened. Not one of the students present came to Wright's aid. They just watched it happen, and then they sat down for the commencement as if nothing unusual had taken place. When the beauty of God's vision inspires you to action, there are going to be times when you feel like you're all alone in the fight facing pushback even from God's people. That's how it goes for anyone who stands up to do what's right in a time when so many people are standing up for what's wrong. But now you must listen. In our time, we need hearts that are open to God's vision, like these two men were, So that more and more of us become God's gifts in a world that needs God's gifts. So that more and more of us engage in good fights of faith. Whether we're at the seminary or at the office or in the church that we go to or with our friends at school or in our neighborhoods, wherever we are, If you do that, I can't tell you exactly what it will mean for you because God's invitation will be personal for you. But I can offer encouragement as your pastor. In the way that Paul encouraged Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, I can give you encouragement for whatever fight your obedience to God leads you into. No matter where that beauty is, inspires you to get involved. I have three scriptures for you and I want you to take these in because God's word, not mine, God's word will sustain us for every battle that we fight for him. The first comes from the book of Hebrews. This is chapter three, verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. If God is speaking to you, be open to whatever he is saying. Maybe in the past you've rebelled and resisted God's voice. Not anymore. If the story of these two men moves you at all, let it happen. Let your hearts be soft and let God do what he wants right in here, And you don't need to have all the answers. All you need to do is take down your guard and let God speak to your heart. Second is Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus said that. Whenever a person gets into the good fight of faith because she trusts and follows Jesus, people will treat her badly. But when that happens, don't get discouraged or give up. In that moment, remember Jesus' words here. You are blessed when you face the fight because God's vision has inspired you. Third is a promise from the book of Galatians. This is chapter six, verse nine. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. That's a promise attached to some encouragement. And you know, neither one of our Theodores gave up on God's vision, and neither should you. Wright left the seminary that evening mistreated but undeterred. He continued to write for the Freedom Journal, the nation's first black-owned and operated newspaper, publishing articles that only meant more resistance, but instead of retreating to his church in New York City and being quiet, he began to travel all over the country, pouring his energy into founding the American Anti-Slavery Society, where he remained on the executive committee through the most challenging years of the fight. He didn't give up. He persisted, and you should too. Theodore Weld, Same story. In the fall of 1834, he marched right into the administrative offices at Lane Seminary. I will not stop talking about abolition just because you made it a rule at your school. And then he withdrew his registration. When word spread to the student body, 103 more students resigned with him. Only eight remained enrolled. There was even a trustee, Asa Mahan, who resigned as an expression of solidarity with the students. He saw in their resolve the bright light of the truth that always shines through God's vision, and he joined the fight. The whole group headed north and enrolled at the new Oberlin College with three conditions— No one tells us what we can talk about. You admit white students and black students according to the same rules. And third, you hire our friend Asa to be the president of the school. They agreed to all three. Weld would later go on to co-write the definitive history of slavery in America, which many regard as the most important literary contribution to the cause of abolition." There is beauty in God's vision every time it finds a heart that chooses to trust and then goes to get involved in some good fight of the faith. What do you say we get ourselves into some good fights? The world needs men and women who are inspired by the future vision that God gives to fight right now for the truth in the present. What do you say? Not our fights, but the good fight of faith. Let's pray now to the one whose vision gives us everything we need. Let's pray. God, we thank you that You've given us in the scriptures everything we need to be inspired to know how to be involved right now in this world which you love to be your agents of change in a world that still needs to change. God, may we receive this morning from this beautiful vision in Revelation the reminder that we should go on fighting for hope every time we feel hopeless The assurance that we should go on fighting for grace every time we make the mistake of believing that it's up to us to save ourselves. And then also give us the strength and the wisdom to go on fighting for every person rather than against one another. Inspire us with these stories of these two Theodores to be God's gifts, to be your good gifts in this world which needs it. And then burn brightly through us even now so that we become the people you mean us to be, especially in a time when we're tempted to divide up. Instead, unite us in your love and in your truth so that we fight together. God, we ask for this in the name of Jesus, who is the lamb, whose blood was poured out for all of us so that we can be welcomed into your kingdom forever. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.